Hello and welcome to Talker Today, where we explore developments in science, technology and society, and what they could mean for the future. I'm your host, Sam Barton. So today my guest is Tiago Forte, the man behind the Building a Second Brain online course. Among many other things, Tiago helps people build their own trusted digital archive for their most valuable knowledge and ideas. We have a pretty wide-ranging discussion uh, covering where people go wrong when it comes to organizing their information, general thoughts about Twitter, the social platform responsible for this conversation, and something I have uh, gotten a lot more active on uh, within the past year. I'm actually a a big fan. Um, We cover Tiago's life philosophy, servant hedonism. Uh, We talk a little bit about trauma and um, why he thinks he's an arms dealer for smart people. Show notes and links for this discussion can be found at talkoftoday.com. And if you'd like to support the show, uh, head to samhbarton.com. You can share it with your friends, rate it on iTunes, uh, do all of those things. I had a lot of fun chatting with Tiago, so I hope you enjoyed the conversation as much as I did. My name is Tiago Forte. I have a company called Forte Labs, which is really just a corporate facade to do whatever I feel like doing. (laughs) (laughs) That's Um, that's good. It's it's an education company. We do everything from live workshops in person to online courses. We have eBooks. We have blog posts. We have um, just a whole range of educational materials, all focused on training people to be radically more effective in the modern world using technology. So that's kind of the common theme. And, and we take an incredibly broad view of productivity, not just, you know, checking boxes and processing your email, but really the full span of what it means to be a generative and effective human being today. Um, which again, just basically allows me to get into anything I want under the banner of this is tax deductible. <laughs> yeah, that's great. That's great. And I mean, this, this space is changing so rapidly. It's kind of a, you're kind of a, an explorer as well as a, it's not just like, you know, apps and productivity and, you know, sitting down and getting things done, but it's also like, what is on the, what's, what's now available on the, on the menu of, te- of technology and how are things changing? And it's a space that's um, evolving so rapidly. I feel like you're, you're a bit of an explorer in that, in that regard. Yeah, I'm, I'm really a researcher. I just can't stand academia. Never did well in school, um, all throughout school. So I kind of had to invent my own little research lab, really, um, which is researching and often experimenting, trying out new everything from apps and, and gadgets to new ways of thinking to new breathwork exercises, really all sorts of things. Um, and then I spin off content and educational programs as, as the way to pay the bills. <laughs> <laughs> so talk to me, how did you come to do this? What's the story behind, uh, I mean, you don't have to go into the, the deep, deep life story, but, um, what brought you to, to doing this full time? You know, I wish, I wish I could say it was a very meticulously, uh, designed master plan, but really, you know, I had a, a consulting job in San Francisco. I worked for this small French boutique consulting in the U S. Um, did you say, am I from the U S or are they yeah. from the U S? Are you from the U S? Yes. I'm from orange County, which is in Southern California, just South of Los Angeles. Yeah. Um, but then I, I, after during college and then after college, I was abroad for several years, came home to orange County, decided I didn't want to be in Southern California. 
Um, and then I started applying to jobs in Silicon Valley. All I knew was I wanted to be in Silicon Valley. That's where everything was happening. That's where all my idols were. And that's, that was the basis of, of my applications. Um, ended up at this consulting firm. I uh, was there for just like 18 months. Um, and when I left there, I really just had no savings, no plan, nothing. I just tried to do whatever I could, just a series of projects and selling random things online to try to just stay independent. That was really the most important thing. What sort of stuff, what sort of stuff were you selling uh, early on? Well, I say random stuff, but really the first thing I did was an online course. It was a, it was a, basically a, a translation of the best-selling productivity book, Getting Things Done, GTD. Yeah. Um, which, which even more at that time was really taking off. And, um, really, you know, I was so naive. I didn't know you're not supposed to just get someone's material from a book and make it into a course. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I did. And that course was super successful. It really kind of gave me my first runway, gave me my first big break, um, and set the stage for my entire business of creating educational content. So how did you get into productivity in general? And is productivity the space? Would you call it the productivity space? So it's a, it's a weird it's one. Problematic. It's yeah. problematic. And people constantly tell me, especially after getting into my work and reading my stuff, they're like, productivity doesn't describe what you do at all. Um, I just haven't found a better word. You know, I don't like philosophy. I don't even like effectiveness, which I feel like is mm. too vague. Um, I really am. I'm really interested in the, in the very practical mechanics of how things are accomplished. Not the, the big theory, but like the really tiny details. Um, and that's why I've continued to use personal productivity. Okay. So one of your, I guess, major projects or if people were, if people were to go online and type in your name or Forte Labs, they'd come across your course, Building a Second Brain. So can you talk to me a little bit about that? Sure. Happy to. Yeah. That's really my, my front and center, my focus. Um, it is a, an online course, a month long online course, soon to be a book. I'm working on the book version now. Um, and it's the end result of five or so years. When I first came out, I, I had been self-employed for five years um, of just teaching, training, consulting, coaching, all these things in the world of productivity. And it's my idea of what is most needed in the world today to make people more effective, which is a second brain. It's kind of like the, 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 the idea is that an average human life is now too complex to be managed by an average human brain. Yeah. And I think everyone listening to this could probably agree with that. I mean, I, I think it's kind of nice knowing that everyone has forgotten to respond to at least someone on their contact list. Like I've got friends and family or whatever that I will, you know, I've left them on scene, you know, I've like, for whatever reason, I haven't actually responded to that message or I haven't followed through with that, that promise that I, that I, that I kept that, that I made ages ago for, for whatever reason. And it's purely because well, it's too goddamn complex and I'm just, you know, this finite meat sack just trying to make it in this, crazy world. Uh, so that really resonates. That really resonates with me. So when you say second brain, uh, what does that mean in this, in this, let's say digital context? So it's funny, just before our, our call, I was, I spent an hour trying to come up with a tweet sized answer to that question. What is a second brain? 
Um, I'm, it's still more than twice as long as, as a tweet <laughs> is allowed to be. So I still have some work to do. It's going to split it um, down into two. You, you want to stay within that character limit. It's the, it's the, no, I got, I got to get it down. It's part of my, it's part of my book proposal, but, um, I'll just, I'll read you the, just the first sentence of what I have here, which is, um, a second brain is a trusted digital archive for all your most valuable knowledge and ideas. So it needs to be digital. I think, um, it's, it's important that what you have stored there is instantly accessible on your phone, on your computer, now on your, your smartwatch that you can search it, you can tag it, you can organize it, you can share it with others. Um, that's why it needs to be digital, right? Because the utility of just, even though we might like that, I love, I, I get, it's better when I'm writing stuff. I just feel more connected to what I'm doing, but in terms like the utility that digital tech provides just trumps everything. I hate using that word now, but just trumps everything. And, uh, yeah. Okay. So it needs to be digital. Sorry for cutting you off. Continue. No, it really, it really does. And I've, uh, there is a raging debate in the, <laughs> this is funny in the uh, note taking world, because I would love to say paper is just as good. I mean, paper is beautiful. It's classic. It's wonderful. But you know, when I, I sit down to work with someone in a coaching relationship and they have, this has happened many times, you know, a, a bookcase full of moleskins, and they go, oh yeah, there's all my ideas and my quotes and my knowledge and my learnings. And I just go, you, you know, do you have access to that? Really? Is it any better to have it there on your shelf than, you know, in a dusty basement or a bank vault somewhere? It's really not accessible when it's in that form. And cataloging that and trying to like, you need a personal librarian to get it, to get access to your own knowledge bank. <laughs> Yeah. So, so, I mean, and I think this is something that people understand, like the average person uses notes, digital notes, even, you know, if you look on, on your, on your iPhone, the Apple notes, I'm sure Android has something similar, like the default note-taking app, people have grocery lists, recipes, reminders, um, you know, people's names, meeting notes. It's all these things very naturally get recorded. The thing that is missing is the other, the other adjective there, which is trusted. Right. That is a whole different ball game is actually trusting that thing to save everything you put into it in a, a format that is relevant and usable and most difficult of all accessible when you actually need it. Yeah. So we all have this second brain already, let's say, but it's just really, really bad. It doesn't yeah. function the way like the information may be there, but it might not be accessible. It may not be in a format that's widely usable. You know, like I can't take my Google Keep notes, let's say, and then chuck them into some other platform easily and search between them all. Like they're not, it's like all these different platforms are kind of not quite knitted together in a way that would be uh, like a brain might be, might, might function like. So how could we construct, like what are some ideas or thoughts uh, or principles that we could use to, that you advise we use to construct these second brains so that they're actually as useful and not so they don't get in the way because that's another thing. Sometimes these things just get way too complex. We spend more time organizing things than actually doing the work and that's not ideal. Exactly. Yeah. I mean the, the, the first one would be that it has to be centralized, you know, it has to be centralized and integrated. If you think of your, your biological brain, you know, if I tell you, okay, think of a, the last time you saw an elephant, Okay. That brings to mind something. <laughs> and then I say, okay, now think of your earliest memory of your mother 
or I say, think of the, the, uh, an interesting philosophical argument that you heard recently. Like I can say anything and something or other will come to mind and you don't have to like, you know, uh, offload a memory module and then walk down a hall and onload another memory module. The, the fundamental fact of your biological brain is that it's one. It's a, it's a one integrated thing. Um, and that needs to be true of your second brain too. And, and this is, you know, a hard thing for people to, we live in a decentralized world where we like to think of like, Oh, the internet and all these, these decentralized networks. And I use all these different apps. That's wonderful. But for your most like interesting, valuable knowledge and insights and ideas, they need to be in one central place. Um, and the place that I recommend is a digital note taking app. Yep. Uh, which sort of apps? I mean, there's obviously plenty of them. Uh, like one spring to mind immediately. Uh, well, Google Drive, Dropbox, uh, OneDrive, and Notion, and other like more niche things. Like those are more, I guess, more broad. But then, and this is, I guess, one of the problems: the more niche you get, the less integrated it can be, it can become. Um, so, which ones? Uh, do you, have you found that, uh, work well for people or are most that, which apps fit best into this, um, this schema, I guess. And, uh, what would the, what would the ultimate app perhaps look like? <laughs> Actually, we don't need, don't, don't answer that question because that's, <laughs> don't answer that. That's too much. We could be here all day. We, we, we will be here all day. Yeah. You know, it's funny because this world of digital notes is so tool centric you know, people, people spend a lot of time and energy talking about this app for that versus that app, comparing features, comparing functionality, um, you know, talking down one, talking up the other, all these things. Maybe it's because I'm coming more from the, the content side, the educational side. I'm very tool agnostic. Um, I personally use Evernote, but not because I did any rigorous across the board analysis. It was really just the first one that I started using and, and liked. Um, and people in the course, we have in the online discussion forum, we have threads for more than two dozen different apps. Oh, wow. There's more than two dozen different notes apps that people have used to take my same course, um, which is sh- kind of shows you that the best note taking methodologies are tool agnostic. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's great. Uh, that's really good. Especially, especially for you. I've just started using notion. I haven't been excited about a, about a, uh, a note taking app or anything like that in a, in a while, but I'm really starting to, to enjoy, enjoy notion. Um, anyway, uh, so what is, I saw this term pop up in, in one of your, in one of your posts. Um, and I identify with it strongly. Um, what's strategic laziness? Yeah. So strategic laziness is the idea that your laziness is actually one of the best sources of innovation that, you know, what is innovation? Innovation is doing more with less. It's leverage, right? It's some kind of shortcut or better design or better formulation of, of something that allows you to get where you're going more efficiently and, and with less effort. Um, and if you think of laziness, you know, there's all sorts of like, um, kind of workplace or, or, uh, like home hacks, like things you can sort of repurpose or use in a different way to kind of fix things in your home. And to me, that's one of the best examples of innovation. Um, and so what I actually, what I actually advocate in my, in my teaching and stuff is like, don't treat laziness as a, as evidence of moral defect. 
as evidence, you know, in this, in this productivity world, so often we can ascribe our so-called failings or our weaknesses or our mistakes and make it mean something about us. You know, I'm lazy. I'm, uh, don't have self-discipline. I'm procrastinating. There's something wrong with me. And I think there's a really interesting kind of mindset shift where you can start to just reframe many of those things and embrace them and things that were before weaknesses actually become strengths. Okay. So what sort of the, what sort of, uh, weaknesses could become strengths in, in, in this, you know, in this thread? Yeah. So I'll give you a couple examples. One simple one is really informal organizing. When I talk to people, talk to people about organizing, they often have this, this kind of preconception of organizing that it's an aesthetic thing, right? Like what does it mean to be organized? They imagine nice little neat rows of pencils and little file folders that are evenly spaced or books on the shelf sorted alphabetically or by color, right? As if it's like an art project. Um, and I really had a different perspective on this growing up with my dad, who is one of the most organized people I know, but also the messiest. He's an artist. He's a painter. And you go into his room and there's just like paint covering every surface. Things are, there's random stuff in piles. He used to go like dumpster diving, find stuff in the neighbor's trash that he would want to paint because it was interesting, like really messy and really organized. And I, what I got from that was a, a philosophy of organizing that what it means to be organized is that you have things are arranged in such a way that they support effective action, right? If you are able to take action effectively, then, and your environment supports that, your tools support that, you are organized, even if aesthetically it looks like a big mess. Mm. So how would that translate in some of these uh, digital apps? So how it translates is I really encourage people to do what really comes most naturally, which is informal organizing. Don't worry about the titles of notes. Just write the first thing that comes to mind. Don't worry about spelling. Don't worry about punctuation, capitalization. Don't use this fancy taxonomy. Um, even within notes, you know, like if you think of like a formal document, it needs, you know, very precise headings and very consistent formatting. And there can be no errors. The punctuation has to be perfect. With notes, it doesn't, you don't need any of that formality. Right with notes, no one is going to see it unless you specifically share it. So I say your notes should be messy. They should be informal. There should be things just thrown in there randomly. There should be mistakes because that is your own personal creative process. Okay, so I, I know there's, like there's, you've got this acronym um, that might sum up a lot of a, a lot of this. It's, is it Para P A R A? Yes. Yeah, I, I say Para as in parachute. Para. Yeah. Gotcha. So can you talk me through that and how that might fit into this, how that fits in here? Yeah, let's see. So para is really just my, my digital organizational system. Um, there's a free article on my blog that we could link to that kind of explains how it works. Um, and it essentially says, instead of creating this infinite hierarchy of categories, right? Which is like the classic, you know, you create 50 different folders and you're like, Oh, now I'm going to be perfectly organized. And then a few days later, you're like, I can't even remember what folders exist. <laughs> well, it's also paralyzing, like trying to, I found that when I tried to organize my information, uh, there's an infinite number of ways I could do it. It, it seems. And I sometimes get overwhelmed with the fact that I could do like, this could be nested here and this actually connects to this and this and this. And I, sometimes I just like, Oh, you know what? I'm not going to do this. And then I move on. 
to doing something else because I just get overwhelmed by the enormity of just trying to reduce this in, this incredibly complex network of information to something that's that's uh, navigatable, Nav- navigable. However, you say, yeah, <laughs> yeah. And and my, you know, what my intention with Para was was really like I would see this in my in my teaching and in my coaching. People use the excuse of I need to get organized as an as this eternal, endless carte blanche like catch-all excuse to just never do what they really say they want to do. Right. It's like the state of being disorganized just becomes this eternal, never ending thing. Um, and with para, I just really want to show people that it's solvable. It is a completely solvable problem to organize your entire digital life in a very short amount of time. Um, and the way to do it is to not organize by, by categories or topics, right? Like psychology, habits, productivity, philosophy, but by projects. Your organizing principle of your digital life, the very best one, and trust me, I've tried them all, is your projects. The act that, the, the, so basically the set of very active goals that you're working toward right now. And the, the cool thing about that, there, there's two huge things that make that easy. One is it's things you're working on. So you're not going to forget about them. Right. And two, there's a finite number of projects that you can be working on at any given time. So you, you, it's sort of like your limited capacity as a human, which you normally see as a limitation becomes your greatest constraint becomes wonderful because it limits the number of places to keep things. (laughs) That's awesome. That's awesome. (laughs) Would you say that's what people generally go wrong with uh, productivity writ large? They just kind of get overwhelmed with the, the enormity or the potential that, 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 that there's, that there is in front of them, all the, the variety of different tools and tasks and all these things. And they just get overwhelmed and then they just think they, they just kind of postpone it or they, do, they don't do it properly. Like where, where do people generally go wrong? Oh boy. How much time do we have? <laughs> it's a lot of things, man. I mean, in that example, I mean, just in organizing your files, there's a ton of pitfalls. Um, you know, creating too many categories, extending it, you know, infinitely horizontally all the way to the horizon is a common pitfall. It sounds like a good idea. Oh, I want to have specific little dividers for all my things. And yet it becomes unmanageable. Um, but also vertically, right? Infinite nesting is another big pitfall, right? Folder, sub folder, sub folder, sub folder, sub folder, sub folder, until it's so, so specific that there's like one thing that can go in that, that subfolder six layers down and nothing else. And then you never find that file again because you never have a reason to get that specific. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. It kind of reminds me of when I was preparing for this, for this talk. Um, I, so I wrote a, a study, study philosophy and last year I wrote a paper on um, why mobile phone ownership and access to the internet is drastically more important for the delivery of, of, or for the, for the, um, delivery of human rights, but also ensuring what you could consider a base level of, of human dignity. And, um, a part of one of the articles I came across, one of the papers I came across describes, um, these digital devices as uh, potential extent extensions of the brain, you know, as, as we're talking about extensions of the mind actually. And, the ethical considerations that come with that, uh, you know, numerous, you know, like if Google holds our information uh, and that is technically could be technically, technically thought of as an extension of our minds, then what a, should we have complete control over that data and yada, yada, yada. We can, we can talk about that for a long time. But I remember trying to find the, 
the source. Um, to, mm-hmm. Just to bring it up in this conversation, I went into my Google Drive and then I went into university and then I went into the, you know, it was postgrad and then the semester and then the blah, 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 blah. And I went through like seven folders to finally get to this, to get this, to this thing. And I nearly didn't find it, you know? So I, uh, it's very, very close to home. Very, very close to home. <laughs> yeah. It's a deep, oh my gosh, it's such a deep topic. Yeah. I, I feel like it's not at all a stretch to say that yourself, you know, whatever that is, is now clearly distributed. It's distributed among your tools and your storage locations and your devices and also in your social networks and all these things. And what does it mean when that distributed self is not under control? It's not organized. It's not accessible. It's not something you trust. Now there's an interesting question. What if we all have this distributed extended self and we don't trust that self? I mean, that gets to the heart of self-confidence and self-efficacy and agency and all these things. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just thinking it's like a fractured self in a way. Yes. It's a little fractured self that doesn't map onto or isn't, isn't, it doesn't map onto what you're really like, but what you're talking about made me think of this. Um, it made me think that one of the, and I've noticed this in my own thinking, um, because we have Google we can just Google things. Um, we no longer need to store information. Uh, what I generally do is I look at something like some determination. It could be uh, an article that I've read online that says, this is some statement of fact. And then I, I don't remember the, um, the, let's say the science behind it, but I remember the determination and I, I remember where to find it. So it's like I store lots of metadata and I, so I have like this big, huge repository of metadata. And then if I need to go and find something out, I know where to look so I can, yeah. so it's like, a, it seems like a very, and I think, I think we all do this intuitively now, or it just might be how we've always done it. But now that we have access to an unlimited amount of information, we just have all these meta tags that we just go and explore, uh, whenever we need to, and then update our information accordingly. Cause I might remember something, Oh, I think that statistic was 75% this, but I go and look at it, but it's actually 80%. That's good enough for, for yeah. navigating the world. All we need is like a certain level of approximation to navigate effectively. Like the, you know, like Pareto principle, we only need like that, that solid uh, 80% that comes from, you know, the, the, the 20%. So, uh, yeah, yeah you- I, think that's a, I think that's a good thing. I think this, this trend is so positive for humanity. If you, if you look at in the past, what a staggering percentage of edu- so-called education was just memorization. It was just get these really dry, precise facts, which is just about the thing the human brain is w- the worst at remembering. You know, th- th- there's a lot of things that the human brain can remember incredibly well. Uh, faces, experiences, um, you know, things like that. Facts are the worst. Um, and that's why that's the first thing that we should outsource. Yeah. To Google, to note taking apps, uh, and people still fight this. It's very funny to me that people fight this idea. They still, there's still this sense of security, the sense of like, um, certainty of just having it all yourself. It's sort of like a false sense of, of self-sufficiency. I think it's the, it's the informational equivalent of storing your, your life savings under your mattress. Right. Yeah. Oh, I have it all right here. It's safe. It's right here under my bed. But that's that's false. When someone can come in and just take it, it actually is actually more secure to distribute your money in places you don't even know where it is. 
in this modern world that has so much uncertainty? Yeah, it's uncertainty is the biggest source of anxiety, I think, for in, in general. And I, I came across this article, I think it was last year, but it was came back to my, I, I looked at it again a couple, like last week. Um, it's about this guy called Carl Friston, I think. He's this um, prolific neuroscientist. Um, I think he invented fMRI. Um, and he, I can't remember if he, well, he's applying this idea of what I think is called the, the free energy principle. And it's basically this, um, this thing that's been found. It's like kind of this universal law of sorts. or so there's this observation that all sorts of systems, uh, and I, I please, those listening to this, like I may butcher this, you go find this out yourself if, if you're very interested. But I think many, many systems, include, including you know, life, what, we, what they try to do is, is minimize surprise. Um, so to try and ensure that, and, and what, it, what he has observed or what others have observed is that nearly all systems have a, an internal model of the external world mm. uh, from bacteria to, to you know, us. And artif- people building artificial intelligence have actually taken this principle. And rather than, I think the comparison was uh, a reinforcement learning algorithm. Um, so, you know... Um, <clears throat> we want this algorithm to play a game and optimize for, for X, you know, optimization algorithms, uh, things. Yeah. So when, uh, an algorithm that was, uh, an optimization, when, when this algorithm was just trying to optimize, uh, when that was compared to uh, an algorithm that all it was trying to do was minimize surprise. Um, the one that minimized surprise trumped all. Um, so mm-hmm. I think really quite interesting and it maps well onto my experience. Um, uncertainty is the, is the mind killer. It's just, it's where all my anxiety comes from. And when we, when facts can change, well, when they do change every single day and when we are, we've, we're now living in this, like, I think of it as like the wild west now, like we're, we're so immersed in the change that we don't really, that we can't really, that we don't see it as much, but shit is going crazy. And I think everyone's like operating up with this quite a high level of uncertainty and we're all just pretending things are okay. But in actual fact, that's just not, we're all silently panicking. Um, maybe not silently in some cases. Um, but yeah, uh, I'll send you a link if you're interested. It's really quite fascinating. This, this free energy principle. Um, and it, yeah, I'm sorry for going off on that little, little tangent, but, um, I just thought it was so cool. I'm, I'm really interested in how, so given that there's so much to know, uh, like this, it's just ridiculous, you know, how, how much there is to learn out there. Um, one way of, um, becoming more efficient at navigating this incredibly complex world is understanding and learning about the key principles that tie everything together. Um, so maths is useful. Statistics is obviously useful. Um, but complexity science, so just understanding how things scale across, across, well, how things scale, um, and all these little laws that can be applied that are applicable to systems everywhere. You suddenly, if, if you understand these things, you can become like the ultimate generalist in a way, you know, you can, you're, you're adaptable to, to any situation. And I think what you're doing actually fits directly into that because uh, what we do is navigate the world based on, and we, we, the way we navigate is using the information we have uh, at our disposal. And in order to navigate most effectively, we need to be able to access that information because we now can extend our, our brain, as you call it, you know, 
buy terabytes and terabytes and terabytes. But if it's all bullshit, well, then it's useless, right? <laughs> so if I can't actually access it, it's, it's useless. Yeah, I think there's a there's an analogy I use in my course that that seems to be very helpful, which is information is like food. And in the past, that maybe was more abstract. Um, but I think one thing we're, we're learning in this modern, very information centric world is that it's more like food than we thought in that it's fundamental to survival. You know, you think information, you know, that's kind of abstract. That's for, that's for people who are quite high on Maslow's hierarchy. You know, they have most of their basic needs fulfilled. It's for people who work in very particular professions, journalists and scientists and engineers. But our world has become so digital um, that now information is quite low on the hierarchy of needs. You know, you really, you really need information to make the basic sense of the world at a day-to-day -day level. Uh, it's no longer this this very abstract uh, ivory tower thing. Yeah, yeah. I, I think it's even more fundamental than that. Um, there's, in it, well, in that everything is information, like all, everything that we see and touch is an instantiation of, of order. And we are brought into the world as like, you know, our genes code for, for how we are. We, we come into the world with like, not, not pre-programmed, but with a, with a, an ability to navigate the world to a certain degree. And we, through our, through the exposure to the environment, we, we learn stuff and we also discard what we learn as well. It's like this constant process of, of learning and unlearning and relearning. And what I think is, you know, this is, I don't know, on Twitter, there's been like this huge discussion about IQ, you know, IQ literature and, and all that. Um, that's been going on for a couple of years. Cause you know, it's, well, we, we don't need to get into that, but what I think, when I think about intelligence, something that, um, I think strikes me, I, I see IQ in a way is just raw processing power, right? But it doesn't matter. Like that, that's just like your ability to process information, maybe recognize patterns, but it doesn't really, like if, if you've got shitty information, if your information is useless, if it doesn't map well onto the environment, you're useless. It doesn't matter if you if you can, you know, if you're operating it a hundred thousand revs or whatever, if you're putting crap in, you're going to get crap out. So I think what real intelligence is or something like it is, is the ability to dis to discern what is useful and good information and update your model accordingly. And yeah. it's the people who do that uh, at all times that the, it's, it's the people who do that every single day that I think really, really make it. And it's hard because what you're dealing with is constant uncertainty because you really, when, when you, when you, when you operate like this, you realize that the, you'll never really get it. And it's just a constant process of, of getting it and, and becoming slightly more attuned to the world around you. Um, which is why, and maybe we'll get into this. I think psychedelics are pretty, uh, can become quite a wonderful tool. Yeah. I was just talking to a fairly well-known YouTuber this morning and he was, uh, he, we were talking about this. Um, I'm doing a lot of video editing now. Um, I decided beginning of this year, I really needed to branch out into new kinds of media and, uh, I wanted to do video. So I usually when I want to, I want to learn a new skill, I have to take on a project it, along, along the lines of what I was saying earlier without a project, it's not real. <laughs> and so I decided to, um, 
to do a, an amateur documentary on my dad and his work. Like I said, he's an artist, he's a painter. He just had, um, in April, a 30 year retrospective on his work. And I thought, Oh, this would be a great chance to do a little, you know, mini documentary. And so for about six hours a day for the past three days, video editing is ridiculously time consuming. It's the most time consuming thing I've ever done. Um, but a couple of things I noticed first was my ability to shape reality is unreal. You know, like I'm, I'm in Adobe premiere and I'm like, based on if I cut right here or right here, it completely changes the meaning of what the person is saying, you know, cause they might say something and at the end they go, Oh, just kidding. Or they might laugh in a way that tells you that they was bullshit, what they were just saying. If you cut that off, then they seem completely serious. I'm like, this is crazy. Yeah. Um, but the other thing I noticed, Oh, it's shoot, I think I forgot the second thing. Um, I forgot the second thing. <laughs> that's, that's okay. It makes me, it reminds me of, um, well, you know, you're obviously familiar with deep fakes and just like the ability of technology to not put words in people's mouths, but to completely generate, uh, videos and video and audio of, of people saying and doing things that they would never ever do or say. Um, I am concerns that I think, and this is a, you know, a broad concern that, and it's been echoed, it's been voiced for a while, you know, we're entering this post-truth era and I'm trying to, I'm, I'm thinking about how we might ensure that this, in, that information is legit. And this is, you know, this is a problem that's very relevant to you because like, it doesn't matter um, what you've got stored in your, in your second brain. If it's wrong, then it's next to useless. It could be worse than useless because it could be, it could be uh, harmful. Yeah. You know, there's something interesting here, which is I, for me, the accuracy of information is very, it's not something I really think about. That may seem weird, but I like, this is, this is something I've noticed recently, which is people see information management, which you could call this general field as either an art or a science. Right. Like I, I have a friend, Connor, who he, he has a note taking app that he's building and his first users are scientists and he's all about the knowledge graph and every source has to be cited. Everything has to be tracked down. And I'm just like, Oh, that sounds terrible to me. Information is really an art. And that probably comes from my dad and my background. Right. It's like, I'm getting information to me. If it's wrong, if it's bizarre, if it's weird, if it's provocative, if it's offensive, all the better. It's, it's better fodder. It's more interesting. It's more dynamic. And in a way, I feel like with building a second brain, I'm, I'm sort of giving people this ability. It's like when you gather all these sources, all this creative material, you can put it together kind of like Legos and create new, not just new ideas, but almost new realities. I kind of feel like I'm an arms dealer for smart people. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> And the, it, would be, it would be interesting to talk about the ethics of that, but I, I kind of think that this is a very Silicon Valley kind of perspective that on balance, people are good. On balance, people do the right thing. And if these tools to, to shape reality are going to be out there and they're clearly out there, I want as many people to have access to them as possible. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think what it, also, what it will also do is when these tools are in people's hands, we have to react like, you know, something bad, someone will do something nefarious and people will be like, Oh my God, that's not good. And then we'll legislate or we'll do something or we'll bring out a new technology to try and try, to try and fix it. But I think this is something that I really want to exist. Um, because when I'm scrolling through 
Twitter, Facebook, with you know my platform of choice, I want to know what the veracity of the you know the the link uh, of what the information contains in whatever it is. How, how truthful is this thing? And what I'd love to be able to do, I, I wish there was like this this Chrome extension or something that gave me a little tick of approval next to a you know a New York Times article, and basically that tick would say um, there you know a list of people have verified that this is um, that the information contained in this uh, in this article is. X percent accurate. And then you could click on that tick and then see who made that determination. And you might get, if it's a essay on um, genetics and some dude from Harvard, who's a geneticist says, yep, this is legitimate. I'm far more likely to believe that. And I think we could build this crowdsourced uh, truth. Like this, uh, <laughs> I, I, I don't know what, it, well, I don't know what you'd call it, but like a way of just verifying the truth of these things. And you could also see why you It'd be like, it'd be like, yeah, it's basically commentary. You could see why people agree with it, why people disagree with it. And you could build your own uh, understanding of it rather than just taking what you're reading as, 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 as gospel. I think what, what this is a bias that we have. Um, if it's on the internet, it's more legit. I think that's just something we accept because it's on the internet. It's like, it's being fed to us. It's like in a newspaper and you know, that's just not the case because anyone can create content. I mean, there, there's, a, there's an interesting implication of the system you just described, which is in a way it is strengthening the idea that all truth is just an opinion because it's making each fact a matter of voting. Yeah. Yeah. Right? Like what if you, what if you click that tick and it has 25 credible institutions that say it's true and another 25 that say it's false. Or, you know, what if all the institutions say it's true and it's actually not true? Like, like there's a weird way in which verification of truth can actually undermine the ob- objectivity of truth. <laughs> yeah. Well, the thing is we can never actually have that. There are truth. There's like truth in the, in the sense of things that are just definitionally true. Like, you know, a bachelor is single, but when it comes to what I guess you could say a facts of nature or something, I feel like we never, ever, ever actually get complete knowledge of or truth, but we, it, we approach it. It's like an asymptote, you know, and we're at this, we're at, which is, it's a, and this is what science is about, right? We, we constantly, we, we don't accept anything. We constantly question everything and we test these things and we, it's, it's fundamentally, um, like, I guess one of the, the fundamental values of, is humility that like, no matter wh- how, how strong our belief is, we should always be open to revising it. And I think, if we take that, like we, sh- we are beginning to take that to, um, I think as a global society, bring that back into how we, how we think about things. Um, I, I'm in Sydney now and, um, at the university of Sydney, all over the campus, they've got, um, we are unlearning X to do X, you know, it's like, Oh, we're trying to deprogram ourselves and update our information based on the new stuff because, you know, basically what we were learning before is, is, is wrong. What are they uh, trying to unlearn? Well, I saw one of them was like, and this was I actually really laughed at this because it was like we're un- we're unlearning um, nutrition science to help people live longer. And they met, they had like a underneath it was um, like the picture was a, a loaf of bread with uh, candles in it. You know, like a birthday bread cake. <laughs> it actually sounds pretty good. I love bread. Um, but they said that, uh, I, I, and I could, I could be wrong, but I remember something like a, a low protein, high carbohydrate diet. I, I need, I need to double check this, but I remember that being like higher in carbs and low 
protein has been shown in some instances to increase it to be good in some sense. And I'm just thinking like diet and exercise, like nutrition is one of these things where we are just learning, well, we are, we'd have no idea what's going on. Like there are all these people talking about carnivore diets and how they're, you know, fucking like killing it. You know, Jordan Peterson's going around, you know, he, he's like the prototypical example of Linda's daughter, but all these people talking about carnivore diets and then there's keto and then there's, you know, juice fasts and like, it's, no one knows, no one actually knows. And, and then there's the fact that we're all genetically different. So what does work for one person might not work for another. Uh, so yeah, it's, um, when it comes to truth, I think it's the good thing is I think a lot of people are becoming a lot more humble and, uh, becoming better, better at saying, I don't know. I, I think, I think, <laughs> yeah. Uh, so what do you think about like, so we came across each other. Or I came across your work on Twitter. Um, and I only saw, I only joined Twitter. I joined it a couple of years ago, but I only kind of jumped on properly at the start of this year because I was like, I used Instagram and Instagram is just not that great for this. Like if I want to use, if I'm going to procrastinate and I'm going to use social media, I want to try and make it as productive as possible. Like not productive in the, like I, I will constantly want to get stuff done, but you know, if I'm going to be silly, I can be silly in better ways, let's say. And I think Twitter is an amazing place. What? So I, I didn't realize that about what, what, I mean, it depends on which, which Twitter you're on, but talk to me about your, what, what are your thoughts on, on Twitter as, as a platform? And I know that you were very active on there. And, um, like I said, this is how we came across each other. How do you see, what do you see Twitter as? And how, what are your general feelings towards it? Positive and negative. Twitter is the most amazing rapid prototyping tool ever invented. Well, that's a quote. <laughs> we'll chuck that on the, on the Instagram or the, on the Twitter. <laughs> yeah, it is the, um, <clears throat> it is a, you know, it's the only social network really that's designed for high bandwidth. Where if you look at, you know, the guidelines for Facebook, Instagram, really any other platform, they say, oh, limit how many times you post. You know, if you post more than this, you'll be penalized. With, with Instagram, you really post like once a day, you know. Um, it's annoying if you post a ton of photos. Twitter, there, as, I, as far as I can tell, there is not only no penalty for constant all-day posting, there is a, a huge benefit. Um, and that's what I do. Just like people ask me sometimes, what is your process for deciding what to tweet or what is your, your Twitter strategy? And I'm like, what? I tweet everything and anything that comes to mind. Right. So Just, it, does, that, yeah. does that fly against so I'm, And this is something that I've, I've like observed and it, it's weird because I see it as incredibly productive in a way. But at the same time, it's, it's social media and it's, you know, addictive and there's this, and this weird call to, you know, open up Twitter and like, you know, you can respond so quickly and, you know, bloody, you forget the apostrophe in something and you look like an idiot, you know, (laughs) whatever. Um, So I find this, I've got this weird dissonance about it, that it's like so incredibly productive in some ways because I learned so much and I engage with really interesting people and I, you know people follow my stuff or whatever. And like, it's good for whatever I'm doing, but it's also this, there's this narrative that social media is bad and the more you use it, the worse it is for you. So what what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, it completely depends. There's this, uh, I forget what it's called. Is it the observer effect? 
it has a name, but on any user generated content platform, which includes all social media, um, there is some sort of distribution that 1% of people more or less produce 90, 90% plus of the content. Right. And most people are lurkers. Like the vast, vast majority of people are just lurking. And you're like basically what what a social media network means to you depends completely on whether you're part of that 1% or whether you're part of the 99%. If you're a consumer, then yeah, social media is a huge distraction. It's a waste of time. It fractures your attention. It just gets you upset at stupid political quarrels. If you're a creator, it is the, I mean, it is just a just a friggin' miracle. You have an instant worldwide free distribution network for anything that you can think of. Um, do you try and make a point to post? Sorry. What's that? Do you try, do you think I should be posting more or, um, is that it's how, what's your, how do you think about creating this sort of like posting on, on, on Twitter? Like what, what's your, is it like a, is it marketing? Is it like, how do you frame it in your mind? Or is it, is it this weird amalgamation of just things that's, got a net positive effect. Yeah, it's definitely a weird amalgamation. Um, you know, when I first started using Twitter, it was like mid 2012 or so, or late 2012. Um, I was just using it for promotion. I was working at a, at an event space at a co-working space and I just need, you know, we had a checklist of oh, posts on Twitter, posts on LinkedIn, posts on Facebook. It was really dumb. And then I just noticed that every time I would log in very quickly, I mean, I had maybe a couple hundred followers, I would start getting notifications. Right. And the notifications on Twitter are interesting because on Facebook, it's kind of, it's kind of bullshit, right? It's like, Oh, you haven't contacted this person in 30 days. It's like completely meaningless notifications just designed to hook you back into the thing. Right. Um, but on Twitter, it's strangers. It's, you know, someone you've never met, uh, that has just interacted with something you posted. It's a very different experience. Um, and then I started using it more for testing ideas. You know, um, it's, it's super interesting. Like with just a few hundred followers, the differential between the engagement is really quite remarkable. You know, I would, even back in the day, I would tweet something and think, okay, this is a great idea. Crickets, nothing, no response. And then something else that I just thought was some lame thing. And there was quite a bit of engagement. Right. Like that. And that's when I started training my internal algorithm. You know, Twitter has their algorithm, but I have my internal algorithm. Each of us has an internal algorithm for basically what is interesting, what is useful, what people are, are interested in. Um, and over six years of doing that, like that algorithm has gotten so refined. You know, it's like so refined where, where I can, and this helps in everything. It helps in producing content and producing products and services in marketing. When you know instinctively and intuitively what people want and what they like, you're just, it's a superpower. Well, it's, it's awesome because what you're doing, you're calibrating yourself to your audience and your audience is, has selected to be, it's like this positive loop in a way that you, you post stuff that attracts certain people of, of, a, of a certain type. And based on their responses, you, you alter how you um, form formulate a, you know, a tweet or whatever. And that can further dictate who else comes to, to, to your, to your profile and to, to, exactly. to feed off I, the, I, the knowledge that you're, you're spitting out. I, I tweeted recently. I was like, I, I was kind of cheeky. I was like, when you follow me on Twitter, you're, you, you are giving me permission to brainwash you. You're agreeing to be brainwashed by me. And then I was like, hey, hey, hey. And then someone responded and they were like, yes, but we're also training you. 
we're training you based on our engagements and our responses and what we like. And I was like, Oh shit, you're right. <laughs> <laughs> so you tweet about things that are, you know, related to productivity, but there's also, you know, things of a philosophical nature um, there, which is one of the reasons why I wanted to reach out because, you know, like there's a lot of bullshit productivity stuff out there. Um, there's, you know, it's just a, it's a really, really busy, um, I would say low value net, uh, generally low value space, but there's some, there's some gold there, which I would say that you're a part of the gold. Um, and you posted recently about, um, a life philosophy servant hedonism. So could you talk a little bit about what servant hedonism is to you? Sure. Yeah, this is, this is just a few days old. It's very timely. Um, really it's my, it's my life philosophy. Uh, even though I didn't think I had a life philosophy and the reason I didn't think I, I had one was, was the, the way that I do things is very bottom up. I don't like long-term strategic plans. I don't like, uh, you know, figuring out your, your, you know, your bucket list for life, your life goals, and then working back from there. I don't like, you know, identifying my five top values and then kind of working out everything else from there. I don't like starting at these big grand visions. Um, and there's, uh, there's probably a number of reasons for that. I really like working bottom up. I like working at the really ground tactical level, creating value, make doing experience uh, experiments, making discoveries, and then see what emerges. See what, what is the, the, um, you know, the goal that rises to the top and then creating a structure just the same as if you were doing it top down, but in a much more organic way. Um, and so I was, I was, I've been suspicious for a long time of any kind of life philosophy. I'm like, I'm, I'm like a life is too complex for a philosophy. You know, it's, it shouldn't be planned that way. But, um, but basically servant hedonism, hedonism is, is a philosophy that says a great way to decide what direction to take in life and in any given situation is by serving others. That's the servant part, right? Just look around you. What needs are there? What challenges and obstacles do the people around you have that you could make a difference in? Um, and it's a great heuristic because a, it's very, it's very, um, generous and just, and humanistic to offer to be of service. And second, it's very easy because there's needs all around you. Everyone has so many needs all the time. Um, but then the second part of that, the hedonism, I think is even more important because in my own life, you know, I was in the Peace Corps where I was basically a, a volunteer for two years in Ukraine, just trying to be of service for two years. Before that, I worked in microfinance, trying to be of service and give microloans to people in Colombia. Before that, I taught English in favelas in Brazil, trying to be of service. And I'm so aware of this pitfall of being a martyr, right? Like I, I've fallen into this so many times where you start, you start thinking, start getting really self-righteous, you know, thinking, well, I, why won't these people listen to me? Why won't they just do what I tell them? Can't they see that I'm just trying to, trying to be good and, and help them? Why don't, why don't they take my help? The helping mentality, you know? Um, and so the hedonism actually addresses that because it acknowledges what I think is the reality, which is it's really about me. I serve because it makes me feel good. I serve because it makes me into a better person. I serve because it gives me skills and knowledge. And I'm totally not apologetic about that. Basically, you could summarize servant hedonism with one phrase, which is serving yourself by serving others. 
it's um it's great that we're kind of programmed in a way uh you know we, we we've evolved to derive tremendous amounts of of pleasure from serving the community and making other people happy it's it's like it's this wonderful uh i guess gifts of evolution that like <laughs> we can really be like happy on a deep deep level by helping others and you know you could think of it as selfish you know it's like oh i'm just trying to make myself feel good like the reason why i go and you know do whatever i whatever i do to make people to, to help others like that's just selfish because i'm just trying to feel good but i don't think that's the best way of that's not the best way of framing it because like it's it's something that we've just evolved to do and, and it's and it's a beautiful thing you mentioned um in the in the piece um i just want to I, so I'll link to this on, on the show notes, um, but <clears throat> it's something that I thought was very, uh, very powerful. And it's that it's this notion that let me just, let me just find it. Um, basically that we are not responsible for a lot of what we, like we are not entirely responsible for who we are, what we do and the, um, the benefits that we derive from those actions. Like I am the result of, you know, I am genetically, my, my parents contributed to who I am, but there's a, there's a line of countless generations before who have led to me being who I am. All the words that I use that we use to, for this conversation have been generated by others. All these ideas that we use to communicate have been generated by this long, long line of, of, um, human beings and others. Like, you know, there, there are these notions that we use to communicate up here. There's these like mental ideas, but there's also these, these physical things that are like built into us. So to think that we are responsible for what we do and is just a kind of absurd. And <laughs> it's like, I, I like, I like this idea because we have a, and this actually relates to tax taxes, funnily enough, but we have a, in a way, a responsibility to, because we've been gifted all these things by our ancestors, for lack of a better term, and, 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 and the community in which the communities in which we live, that we have a, in a way, a, a duty to give back. And if we give back, we are, we are rewarded for, for doing so. Um, in a way that's, um, in the way society set up and we are rewarded in a, in a, in a way that is proportional to the amount of benefit we've received that, that, that we've, that we've given. And that's where money comes in. Right. So that's what, that's kind of what I see money as like money is like, look, all right, guys. And this is where I say, guys, I mean, society, there's a lot of stuff that we need to get done. All right. And there's a stuff called money. Right. And if you, and money can make you very happy or it can, it can unlock happiness in a way. It doesn't make you happy, but it can help ensure that you'll be a happier person and give you greater control over what's going on. So if you go and do stuff that's good for society, we'll give you a little bit of money, but it's not all your money, right? It's not all yours because, you know, this is ours, it's society's and we're going to tax some of that money. Look, we're going to take some of that back because you don't own all of it. You don't own all of it. We've given this to you. The fact that this has value is because we all think it's valuable. So you can earn as much as you want, but we will tax some of it because you are not deserving of, of, of everything. Like you, we are not deserving um, of all of the fruits of our labor because how much of what I do or what we do is because of what I have done. And this notion of the self is, you know, what the hell am I? So I, I thought it was like, when I, when I saw, when I saw servant hedonism, I, I, you know, when I started looking at it, I was like, 
oh yeah, you know, I like this. But then when I started reading, I'm like, no, this is a lot deeper than than um, it actually than it actually sounds. It, it's deeper in this <laughs> in this grand historical sense because we are not responsible. We are fundamentally not responsible for who we are and what we do, and we are like inextricably tied together. So I just thought it was. Um, I, th- I thought you you know it, it's quite beautiful. Thank you, thank you. Yeah, yeah. It's something. It's interesting. It's um, the thing about responsibility. It's interesting because often we take responsibility for things that are not our responsibility to avoid the responsibility that actually is ours. Right. Like I saw this, you know, I worked most of my career before starting this company was in nonprofits and I would see this constantly. You know, there's a, there's a person working in say microfinance in Columbia and they are say the director of the loan program. And they're, they're, you know, taking the response, taking responsibility for all these micro entrepreneurs in this huge region of Northern Columbia and working herself to the bone. You know, like uh, working late at night on the weekends, not exercising, not resting, not centering herself, not grounding herself. To me, that is actually an abdication of responsibility because her health and happiness and peace of mind actually is central to her responsibility. And by serving her, serving herself, being selfish, so to speak, and actually filling those deep reserves within herself, she would actually be far more capable of serving those communities outside of herself. It's not just serving the communities. It's not just that she'd be better equipped to serve others, but it's also a, a it's about it's a matter of respect for the investment that's been put into her and into us. You know, yeah. like society has invested all these resources into you, in you know, and. I'm not saying like, you know, schooling and money, but it's like, we are a long, we are connected to this huge chain across, you know, generations, generations, generations that led to this moment. And by not taking care of yourself, you're kind of, you're, you're disrespecting that. So it's, 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 it's beautiful because it, it's, it brings, it's, it's positive on all fronts. You know, you, you're all better. You're, you're, you're accepting, you're, you're being grateful for like what, what has come before you and what has led to to who you are today and you're paying it forward. Yeah. Yeah. You can't treat others better than you treat yourself. The way you treat yourself is the ceiling, the way you talk to yourself, you know, the way you treat yourself is the ceiling on how you can treat anyone else. So if that internal monologue in your head is negative, just telling you how bad you are, how wrong you are, how much you messed it up, how weak you are, how lazy you are, you better believe that is coming, whether you think it is or not, that is that inner dialogue is coming out in your outer dialogue. It's coming out to your partner, to your kids, to your coworkers. There's no way to avoid it. You know, humans are one going back to our previous conversation. Humans are fundamentally one being we're fundamentally integrated. There's not these compartmentalized modules that interact with the world in completely different ways. The way you do one thing is the way you do everything. Yeah. That's- so, I mean, this, this is why I'm just so into personal growth and actually what I'm really getting into now, which we can get into it if you want is trauma. Healing trauma is at the very root of all of this stuff. Yeah. Let's, let's go there. Let's talk to me about it. What, what, have, what have you found? Well, um, I did a course a few weeks ago, about a month ago called groundbreakers. 
Um, and it was a week long, six and a half, seven days in a completely isolated location in the, the Northern Sierras in California, uh, with three facilitators and only 10 participants. So like a, you know, three to one ratio. And it was one of the most intense experiences I've ever had. Um, it was basically, so you can think of like the human mind, like the very logical brain, the mammalian mind, kind of the, the emotional brain, and then the lizard mind, which is like the body, right? Lizard, mammal, human, and different modalities touch different ones of those, right? Talk therapy, things that are very cognitive tend to hit like the logical part of the brain. It's very conceptual. It's very driven by insights. And I've done a lot of that work before. Um, and we did that as well, but we also got it. We accompanied that essentially the course is about treating and dealing with all three of those levels at once. Right? So one minute I was with a facilitator with a coach and he's like doing this thing called deconstruction where they basically get one of your mental models and kind of break it apart. They just question it from all these different sides and they poke holes in it and they're highly trained. And so after five minutes, you're just like, I have no idea what I think about this. I'm just, my mental model's obliterated. Um, but then at that moment you go into, there was like an anger room. And this was actually my big breakthrough is doing anger work, which in my experience is one of the, it's still like the deep dark shadow of personal growth. You know, even people that do a lot of personal growth stuff, like anger is still taboo. You're not supposed to be angry. You're supposed to be a peaceful Buddha who just has total equanimity and total peacefulness, right? But we go into this room and we just start wailing on these cushions with tennis rackets. And it's like, it's kind of like primal scream. Like I, I had to wear gloves because I was hitting this thing so hard that it was like taking the skin off my hand. I'm just like hitting this thing as hard as I can and just screaming like I've never screamed in my entire life. And just letting out all this anger. Like, you know, when they first told us the exercise, I was like, I don't have any anger. I feel completely at peace. They're like, just wait. Right. And we did these breathing exercises. There were certain prompts. And before I know it, I'm over there wailing on this thing. And this incredible white hot anger is coming up out of me. And I'm just like a banshee for like half an hour wailing on this thing. And what I learned through that is so, so basically the whole point here of this whole course was to heal trauma. And there's essentially three ways you can do that. There's the talk therapy route. There's chemicals like psychedelics, like medication. But the third one is the least understood and the least explored, which is going through physical actions where you, you essentially act out what you were not able to act out at the time that you were traumatized. You take yourself back there and you recreate the experience, but this time you fight and you yell and you push back instead of being a victim. And do they, do they try and, in, were they trying to bring about those experiences, those memories that you were, you were trying to remember what those triggers were that, that, so you were trying to put yourself in that moment and then react the way you might've been like the primal way that you might've wanted to. Yeah. Yeah. The, the goal, you can, you can think about things that make you angry and express them. Of course you're supposed to, um, but the coaching is to not get lost in the story, right? To not, to not get lost in, Oh, this is actually true, or this is actually what happened. Um, and the, the coaching is essential. I mean, the, the facilitators were just like the container of just, of just unconditional love and support 
is the only thing that allows this kind of work to be possible. You can't just, you know, do that in any environment. Um, but the reason this was so interesting is I'm reading there's the, the book on which this course is based is called the body keeps the score, uh, which is this absolutely mind blowing book that I just finished, um, by this guy, Bessel van der Kolk, um, who has spent a few decades treating trauma. And you know what are symptoms of, of trauma are all the things that I deal with in productivity. All the symptoms that people tell me I'm dealing with X, Y, Z. I'm, I'm going to write a blog post uh, on this and make a list of probably 20 different things are direct common symptoms of trauma. Wow. I wouldn't have thought that. that I, I wouldn't have thought about that connection. And sometimes on both sides. So for example, two very common symptoms of trauma are either the inability to pay attention, right? All of the symptoms associated with ADHD. Um, and what's his name on the Tim Ferriss podcast talked about this. Uh, Monte. Yes. He talked about the connection between trauma and ADHD. Yeah, so he's got this book called scattered minds where, cause he's got ADHD. Um, uh, he's, it was, so I've, I've got diagnosed recently. Um, and it was his, I, I've been thinking about it for a long time and I went for a, I have a, a, a good friend of mine who has ADHD and he recommended the book to me and I went for a run, put the audio book in just to listen to it. And then 20 minutes in, I was bawling. Like I was just like, it was, I would have looked ridiculous. Like who's this guy? Cause I'm running in a public space. Like who's this guy just like selfing like running along the river, running by the river. And, um, yeah. So he, he, he talks about how, I mean, a lot of it, like ADHD we think has a lot of genetic bases, but you know, not all, it's not always expressed. So environment is a big, is it like, seems to be, it could be a big part of it. And what could bring it out is, is trauma. Um, but anyway, I'll let you continue, but great book for anyone who's interested in, um, in ADHD, but he's, he's, he's great. He's totally. But the, the, the fascinating thing. So, so that kind of makes sense, but hyper-focus, the ability to completely zero in, completely lose awareness of your surroundings and focus for hours and hours and hours at a time is equally a symptom of trauma. Because both sides are forms of dissociation. And dissociation is the very, very essence of trauma. When you are traumatized as a kid, you just want to escape. You know, you just step, your mind steps away from your body. And just leaves the situation for, you know, as a child, you can't actually leave. The person abusing you is, is unfortunately often the person you depend on for, for your survival. So you have to just mentally leave. Um, so dis dissociation is what they both share in common. Um, and I'm starting to see from reading this book and doing this training, um, getting to the roots of trauma is going to become central to my work. I can just see it. Um, because I'm, I'm always just, just so determined to find the root. I don't want to deal with superficial band-aids. I don't want to deal with tips and tricks. I want to get to the very root. and a big, actually a big part of this course that I did was, you know, I had trouble when they said you have trauma. I was like, no, I, I don't like I had, I had an idyllic Southern California lifestyle. Both my parents are wonderful people. Never did anything bad to me. Never abused me. There's no incidents, never been in a natural disaster, never been in a car accident, nothing. But what I understood is there's some, there's acute trauma. There's something happened to you and that's different. Definitely. But then there is some other thing that doesn't really have a name, background trauma, latent trauma. It's just the trauma of living. 
It's just the day-to-day disappointments, frustrations, anger, sadness, all the emotions you're just not able to express because of our, our social conditioning. That also accumulates or, or collects somehow. Um, and that's, I think, something that is kind of part of the universal human condition. Yeah. Well, it sounds... I've very, I've, I've heard the book recommended a number of times, but I've never checked it out. But I'm, I'm really keen to, to, to go look into it. So I'll, I'll share that in the, in the show notes. Um, I, I know we're getting close to the end of our time. I just thought I'd run through some, some quick, some quick questions just to, to wrap up. Um, yeah. So what was the last thing you changed your mind on? I mean, maybe it was, it was this trauma, this trauma stuff. Like what, what was the last topic you changed your mind about? yeah that was probably it Uh, at least uh, how we need to think about it a bit but um i think that was that was it the idea that maybe trauma is not what i think it is and maybe it's not maybe there's more kinds than one maybe it's a spectrum and maybe there is something for me in it and, and for a lot of other people who don't identify necessarily as victims of trauma. And yet there is something in these modalities that I've been experimenting with that I think can help everyone. Yeah. I'm just realizing that a lot of these, these wrap up questions I have could probably be answered by this, this trauma question. So like, what topic do you think is not getting enough attention at the moment? What are you most excited about at the moment? Um, I think this could be wrapped up into that. Um, what about, um, any favorite books or podcasts, blogs, sources of media that have had a tremendous impact on your life, um, in any way? Oh my gosh. So many, so many, um, Let's see. Podcasts, I'm, I don't venture too far. I pretty much listen to NP, different NPR podcasts, Tim Ferriss. Um, and then if someone recommends a specific you know, episode, I'll listen to it. Um, in terms of blog, you know, it's funny. I don't, I'm not the kind that goes to one source so much. I kind of let the full, the tide wash over me from social media. And then I'm very agnostic about, yeah. And exactly. just grab it, grab it as it comes by. Yep. And then yeah. try and store it somewhere. Right. That's what you do. You just yes. let the tide come over and grab the good bits and then put it in somewhere in your digital brain for later when you need it. I'm the guy like standing in the middle of the river with those like boots that go up to your waist and I'm just like chilling there. And then when I see this like big fish come by, I just like reach in and grab it or spear it. And then that's my my information consumption. (laughs) Um, so I tend to jump all around. Uh, that's not a very satisfying answer, but in books, um, yeah, I'm so immersed in the body keeps the score right now that it's, it's hard to think of anything else, but I mean, my other big inspiration besides nonfiction is, is sci-fi. Sci-fi to me is one of the greatest wellsprings of new ideas and new perspectives that, that we have. Um, and that it's seriously underrated as a source of actual practical things. Um, you know, before you create something, you have to imagine it until the mind can see something, it can't make it which is this really weird paradox, right? How can you make it if you can't see it? And how can you see it if you, if you don't, haven't made it? <laughs> um, but sci-fi allows you to do that. It, it paints these future scenarios so vividly that you can imagine what VR is going to be like, what AR, what drones, what, 
you know, extended minds are actually going to look like. And then you kind of have the courage to make it. Any uh, particular books, sci-fi books or authors? I mean, in terms of authors, um, my favorite is Hyperion. Um, I've read over a hundred sci-fi books and that's, that's so far my favorite one. Um, it's written like the Bible. It's like as epic as the Bible. Like, in fact, when I read it, I was raised as an evangelical Christian. The feelings that I had reading it of of just epicness were, I hadn't had those feelings since, you know, being in church as a kid. Yeah. Have you, um, I, I forget who that author is though, but you can, Oh, Dan Simmons, Dan Simmons. Yeah. Um, this might be the bad thing to bring up now, given that we're getting coming to the end of the conversation, but if you know Jordan Peterson's like analysis of the Bible and that some of the exploration he's done where that's concerned. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. yeah. Does that speak to a lot of your, because in terms of epicness, like what I think is quite interesting is like, I, I've never really been, I grew up Catholic, but I was never, ever, ever Catholic. I just like went through the motions. I was like, Oh, I'm probably an atheist and all that, but I really like his, what I think he's doing is taking these, these old texts, these old myths and saying, well, they're not all like bullshit. They're actually taking some really, really deep, uh, maybe not truths, but, um, ways of, um, observations of how we should act in the world and how that maps onto the greater reality. And what I think is absolutely fascinating is that he talks about how these stories encourage us and help us understand that we live in a place characterized we live in a a sea of chaos right and we go about our lives trying to confront the chaos and learn from it and create habitable order where we are and that's based on information right it's 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 what we're doing with the second with this second brain stuff where confronting the world around us and trying to learn how we can exist within this uh this crazy world uh in in a safer way and create and contribute to the increasing of order in the world. And what I think is awesome is that this maps onto directly the increasing complexity and order we see in the universe um, Mm. and on earth. Like we are at, if we think in terms of complexity, the planet earth is this blip in the vast expanse of the cosmos of just a huge concentration of complexity and order. And it seems to me that what, what he's highlighting and what, see people get mad at him because he's not this messiah. He's just like, Hey, there's all this old, really cool shit that we've like learned as a, as a species across time. And here's how this makes sense given our new understanding of, of, of science. And what he's saying is like, these texts are like explaining or representing some fundamental, something that's very, very important that it, it's this increasing of order that we seem to be, that our moral intuition seem to be mapped onto in a way that we're, what, what we're trying to do is increase order because what order is it kind of ensures that life exists now and will exist continuing into the future and things will be better. Like the more we know, the more we know about the world and the, the way it operates, the better we can operate within it. And that means we're less likely to just die and we're more likely to flourish. So it's this, this constant it's, and, and it doesn't, it doesn't have an end, but it seems to be this, the general goal is onwards and upwards in terms of complexity and order. And I came across this, uh, that's another conversation that we'll, we'll go, but basically just like this notion, but in a more very physics, like astrophysics, uh, in a very physical um, context. So like, what's this, like, how does this actually operate? Well, what does this look like at the, 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 
um, at the level of, of, of energy and information. So that very fundamentally, like we, cause we can measure this stuff. That's what's so cool. It's like literally these, these notions, these, the, these religious notions are now being mapped onto physical phenomena. So that we're going to, I think we're seeing this coming together of religion and science in a way that just ha- has never happened before. And it's because we have these, we have the tools of science and this guy, Eric Chasen, C-H- A-I-S-S-O-N. He's an astrophysicist at Harvard. And I was watching this lecture of his and the way he talks about what this cosmic evolution is what I think a lot of people who are scientists, it's, 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 it's this spirit. It's that it's the spirituality that, that, that I think scientists have, that we are a part of this wonderful, incredibly mysterious cosmos and we are embedded within it. And all we want to know is understand our place in it and by doing, by exploring this, by, by exploring the universe through science, we can derive a, a far deeper understanding and appreciation and sense of wonder than we can from, from, uh, well, not, not, not a deeper sense of appreciation than we can from other like religious texts, but they, they come together and they, they augment each other. And yeah, it's, yeah I, I'll send you, if you're interested, I'll send you this, um, I'll send you the link to the video. I'll, I'll post it in the show notes because it's like, I was just transfixed. Um, I was a little bit stoned, but that's, you know. Oh, that's what I was going to say about the video is the best state of mind. Like if you're doing video editing, which is a lot of, especially the early passes, you're just watching a lot of footage being stoned is an awesome state. It's probably the best state of mind for that kind of activity. Yeah. Cause you know, you're trying to time cuts and with the music, you're trying to time like the, the frame cuts and the music and you feel it, right? it's something that you actually feel rather than think about. And when you're stoned, you're far more, it seems like you're far more in touch with what's going on in your body. And you know, I've, I've done some video editing stone as well. And I, it's like, it's a performance enhancer. Like the, the best, the most productive time I spend, I shit you not, is when I take a heavy dose of edibles and go for a long, long run, like yeah. two hours. And I'll, I'll do a month's worth of thinking then I'll have ins- I'll have like a, lots of insights. Basically I'll, I can base like the next one or two months of work off, off one of those runs. Um, yeah. really excited for us to explore as a, you know, like globally, just the power of these, of these, of these, I guess, herbal technologies. So, you know, like psychedelics and, and cannabis and all that, because they, they hold tremendous power. Um, I think so too. I, yeah. huge. Um, so I guess one last question before we wrap up. Um, what principles do you try and live your life by? Or what principles have you kind of learned in your state of, you know, becoming over the, over the past uh, few years, decades? Um, what have you, what's kind of, I don't know how old you are, sorry. Um, so but what, what have you kind of extracted um, and you think is, is quite true about how we, sh- how we might, uh, how we should go about living our lives? Well, servant hedonism answers a lot of that. Um, yeah, that's, that's very true. That's very true. I don't know if I have many uh, kind of overarching principles. I, you know, I really value adaptability and change. Um, and just this idea that the only, like the only, the only security comes from adapting the change that there's no, there's no rock to stand on. There's no fixed frame of reference. And so the only thing to do is just surf those ways of change. Um, I think I've gotten a lot of that from, from living abroad where you have to be, 
you just have to be inherently so adaptable to live, especially in developing countries where you just never know what's going to happen the next week or the next day or the next hour. Um, and I think a lot of what's happening, speaking of what's happening in the world, actually, I, one of my biggest sources of inspiration is Brazilian culture because my mom is Brazilian. Uh, my name, Tiago, is a, is a very uh, common Brazilian name. And Brazil, Brazilian culture is all about this dynamic adaptation to change because everything is changing all the time and completely unpredictable. And I think actually the developed so-called developed world has a lot to learn from that because now for the first time, our world is becoming as uncertain and ambiguous as the developing world has always been. So it's kind of like, they're the experts. (laughs) I think the word, the term developed world is such a bloody, it's what a misnomer. It's so arrogant as well. The arrogance is like, oh, we are developed. Oh, yes, yes, quite. We're, we're quite remarkable over here. Um, <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, well, uh, Tiago, thank you very much uh, for your time. Um, I, before, uh, is there anything you'd like to, any asks of the audience or any parting message you'd like to, you'd like to leave? <laughs> Yeah, just to check out my my website if they have any interest in any of this. It's Forte Labs, F-O-R-T-E-L-A-B-S uh, dot C-O, not dot com, dot C-O. Uh, and that, that's kind of like a, a directory or a portal to my online courses, to my ebooks, to my blog, to my workshops and speaking. That's that's kind of the whole shebang. And uh, to just reach out to me by, by Twitter, preferably, and, and let me know if they uh, liked the episode and what they liked about it. Yep. Cool. Well, uh, all of the links, your Twitter handle website and all that will be, uh, can be found in the, I'll put them in the show notes and, uh, yeah, Tiago, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. Thank you so much, Sam. All right. So thanks again to Tiago Forte for taking the time to have a chat. I had a, a really good time. Um, if you'd like to look up some of the stuff that we covered, um, head to the show notes at talkoftoday.com. Uh, or go to his website, Forte Labs. Um, check him out on Twitter. Uh, he delivers a lot of value, um, so highly recommend it. And if you'd like to keep up to date with some of the stuff that I've got going on, head to samhbarton.com and you can subscribe to my newsletter there. Anyway, uh, thank you for listening, and until next time, goodbye. <laughs>